Brazil has officially overtaken the U.S. to become the top corn exporter in the world. And companies like Lavoro Agro are seizing a huge opportunity to bring more technology to Brazilian farmers. A U.S. corn farmer is going to be two times more productive than that Brazilian farmer. And the difference really is going to come down to technology. And that technology comes in the form of inputs. And inputs is really where Lavoro plays. That's Lavoro's chief digital officer, Alex Wimbush. Today, he sits down with guest host Rishi Pete, who was also his colleague when they both worked at the Climate Corporation. I'm noticing a lot of companies out there almost have like a form of about AI and you know, some of these new tools like ChatGPT. Are you feeling the pressure from certain folks like, hey, we need to use ChatGPT or we need to use, you know, whatever the latest uh, shiny object is? This episode is a fascinating exploration of product management, Brazilian agriculture, and ag-retail. I haven't seen yet any real, true, sort of sustained, higher value input plus services plus products plus digital type offering. Rishi Pete interviews Lavoro Agro's Alex Wimbush on today's Future of Agriculture podcast. Hello, Agner. Thank you so much for joining me for another episode of the Future of Agriculture. My name is Tim Hamrich, and every week you and I get to hear from the farmers, founders, innovators, investors, the people shaping the future of the ag industry. I'm very pleased that this quarter of the Future of Agriculture podcast is brought to you by our quarterly presenting sponsor, which is Swap Maps. Because when you know more, you grow more. Swap Maps variable rate technology helps you understand the why of field variability and how to better manage it. Understanding soils is the core of a successful fertility program, and Swap Maps allows you to map, measure, and better manage your soils using data that accurately delineates areas with similar fertilizer response characteristics. Turn your data into actionable value with Swap Maps. They're your trusted variable rate provider on millions of acres currently with a 98% retention rate. Swap Maps, they do variable rate right. Learn more at swapmaps.com. Uh, book a consultation or just check out more information. That's swapmaps.com. And thank you once again to Swap Maps for supporting ag innovation and the future of agriculture podcast. All right, now back to today's episode with Alex Wimbush of Lavoro Agro. This is another episode hosted by Rishi Pete, who hosted one with Verdant Robotics a few months ago. Most of you probably know Rishi from his insightful newsletter called Software is Feeding the World. If for some reason you're just hearing about this for the first time and you're not already subscribed to that newsletter, I'll do you a favor and put a link directly to it in the show notes of today's episode. It's free and well worth your time if you're remotely interested in ag tech and topics surrounding ag tech. Uh, today's episode really is the quintessential example of why I like having certain guest hosts on this show. Uh, Rishi and Alex have known each other for years, and both of them are experts in the area of product management in ag tech. So you're in for a real treat and a deeper dive than I would be able to provide for you. So thank you so much, Rishi for coming back to host another episode. Yeah, thanks, Tim, again, for giving me the opportunity to host. And I think this was a really fun conversation. Yeah, this one's fascinating. Let's let's get right into it. Maybe talk about that history you have with Alex and uh, why you wanted to bring him on the show. 
Yeah, Alex and I, we were colleagues at the Climate Corporation on the product management team. And I've had a huge amount of respect for Alex over the years. Even before when he was at Climate, Alex was an entrepreneur. He had his own ad tech company. He had experience working at Syngenta. And then the most interesting part was after he led Climate, uh, he worked at a fintech company, which is very fast-paced and had customers in Africa. And I felt his experience of working with a very different customer set and in a very different industry would be very valuable to talk about. And recently, he has taken on a new position with Lavoro Ag as a chief digital officer. Uh, and Lavoro is a very interesting company. So I, I felt Alex had the right mix of inside industry experience, outside industry experience, startup experience, and working in a brand new area, which is new for me, which is Brazil, uh, I thought he would make a really great guest. Yeah, I, and I agree. But talk specifically about Lavoro Agro, a company that I think a lot of us in the US may not be familiar with. What's particularly interesting about that company to you? Yeah, Lavoro, what I find it interesting is um, they are one of the largest uh, companies in this space when it comes to inputs. They have an on-the-ground network. They have grown through acquisition of regional brands uh, who already have strong relationship with uh, farmers. And as you know, agriculture is very much a relationship-driven business. And so what they're doing is really interesting. They're following this M&A strategy, a relationship-based strategy, and then layering on digital capabilities. This is where Alex's role comes in. And this is a great example of somebody trying to go through a process of digital transformation and taking advantage of the latest tools and technologies and trying to meet customers where they are and trying to solve their problems. Uh, so I find that really interesting. Yeah, I do too. And I know you have this background in, in ex expertise in product management, and that's that's also his expertise as well. And so I found this episode to be kind of a masterclass in product management. But for those listening who who might be saying, well, like, I'm not a product manager, or I don't even know what product management is. Can you maybe talk about the important role a product manager plays in, in an ag tech company or, or just any company trying to bring technology? Yeah, I think a product manager role is quite common, uh, especially in tech. And so if you walk the halls of a Google or an Amazon or a Facebook, you know, you will meet a lot of product managers. And depending on which company you work at, the role can have slightly different mandates. But at a high level, your main job is to bring products to market which solve customer problems. So you, really, you have to spend a lot of time in really deeply understanding what are the customer pain points, what are the different outcomes that they're looking for, and how your company's product and service can help them solve those problems. And you have to do this while making sure that you're actually building a business for your company, whether it's the main thing that you're doing or whether your technology is an enabler for something else. And so this role typically sits between commercial teams, engineering teams, your business strategy teams, and it's a pivotal role in making sure you're building the right products, which create a great experience for your customers, and also advance your business strategy while creating a big business for your company. Cool. Well, Rishi, anything else that the audience should know before we drop them into this conversation with Alex? No, I think this is a good 
set up the Brazilian market and the Brazilian ecosystem is very different. And so I, I hope people get some really good insights into how farming is done in Brazil compared to, let's say, North America. Great. Well, we'll drop you in the conversation between Rishi and Alex. In fact, talking about some of those differences between the Brazilian market and North American agriculture. So Brazil, as some of your listeners, maybe not all know, is an absolute ag powerhouse. Just to put some numbers on it, they exported about $140 billion in ag products last year. They're the third largest ag exporter in the world. There is an insane amount of diversity in terms of soil and climate across the country. I mean, you've got everything from sort of more Midwest-like parts in the south of Brazil, all the way up to the tropics in the north. Maybe one other way to, to think about it, there's a direct flight from Boston to Sao Paulo. It's about a 10-hour flight. You cross into northern Brazil roughly halfway through that flight. So five hours is coming down the Atlantic coast over the Caribbean and five more hours across Brazil to get to Sao Paulo. It's, it's just a huge country. In terms of farmers in Brazil, in general, they're going to be younger than their U.S. counterparts. They tend to be more profitable also than their U.S. counterparts. So operating margins for a Brazilian farmer in the last couple of years have been like 35 to 40%. If you look at productivity, however, a U.S. corn farmer is going to be two times more productive than that Brazilian farmer. And the difference really is going to come down to technology. And that technology comes in the form of inputs. And inputs is really where Lavoro plays. So Lavoro is the largest ag retailer in Brazil. Um, I guess to put some more numbers, just a sense of scale again, we have roughly 4,000 employees. About 1,000 of those employees are what we call RTVs. In the States, we'd, we'd refer to them as technical agronomists, uh, technical sales consultants, but the key word there is, is really technical. Those RTVs are spread across about 200 different retail locations all around Brazil. Across all of our locations, all of those RTVs in our past fiscal year, we did close to $1.8 billion in revenue, about 72,000 customers covering about 150 million acres. So it's a sizable operation. Lavoro as a company, um, and this is one of the things that really drew me in and, and got me really interested in it, was it offers a really complete portfolio of inputs. It's everything from seeds and fertilizers to the crop protection projects and to the biologicals. Also incredibly interesting is that it's vertically integrated. So we have a portion of the company, we call it Crop Care. And that's basically our own private label. We manufacture it. There's some R&D that goes on. And we produce everything there from biologicals to specialty fertilizers, adjuvants, and there's also some post-patent crop protection products as well. So just an incredible diversity of portfolio. Our headquarters is in Sao Paulo. I already mentioned that. I, I fly down there periodically. And you know, it's, it's a great city. I would, I would recommend it to, to all the listeners to take a trip down there at some point. A couple other things to know about Lavoro. It's a roll-up of about 30 smaller independent ag retail companies. So it was started by um, a large Brazilian private equity company several years ago called Patria, and they basically have systematically gone out. There's a great formula for how the company approaches this, how it looks at M&A, but they've gone out and, and one by one acquired these smaller independent ag companies, brought them into the Lavoro umbrella, and... You know, if you wanted to go out and Google what some of these companies are, because we keep the original brands, um, because there's a, quite a lot of loyalty there with the growers and, and, and with the team, you could go look for names like AgroZap or Impacto, Floema, and of course, Lavoro itself is, is the original one. 
I mentioned that diversity of products a minute ago, um, just to add a little bit more to the, the complexity. Each of those companies is going to offer a slightly different mix of products and brands, depending on what legacy relationships and, and the like that they had. Um, and of course, they're operating on a, and maybe this is where we start to move in the digital, right? They're operating on a different set of legacy systems and legacy tools and all that. What they all have in common, and I think this is then the, the place to, to really start, is the RTVs, those technical sales consultants. And, and they're really the lifeblood of the company. No, I think that was a great background. Um, I mean, one thing which you mentioned, which is very interesting, that the Brazilian farmers are more profitable than the U.S. farmers. And they are growing the same commodity crops, which are being sold in the same commodity markets worldwide. So what is the reason for that? I mean, that, that is very interesting to hear. I'd love to know more about that. Yeah, it's a great, um, it's a great question. Is one of the things that when I learned it, once you know it, it just seems so, it seems so obvious, but it's the fact that there are multiple seasons over the course of the year. So another point of comparison, I guess, would be land ownership. And, and Brazilian farmers tend to own their land at a much higher rate than their U.S. counterparts. So when you couple the land ownership with the fact that across most of the country, you can get two crops in per year, in some parts, you can even get three crops in per year, you, know, you spread all that out and you end up with higher profitability. And one of the other sort of interesting land use aspects that's been really fascinating for me is, is also this notion of crop and livestock integration. So it's not just that they'll get you know two crops in a given year in, but they might also get a little bit of livestocking on the land as well. And so they're really getting kind of three useful periods over the course of a year. That's really fascinating. I mean, what are some of the other differences? You know, we talked about land holding, we talked about multiple seasons, maybe from a tech adoption standpoint, or other differences, maybe there are regulatory differences in the environment between US and Brazil. Like, What are some of the other key differences uh, between farming operations in Brazil versus, let's say, US or Canada? So I'd say from a tech adoption perspective, um, what I've seen, I mean, certainly when it comes to seeds and genetics, they're, they're right up there. High penetration of, of GM, obviously, just like in the US, adopting the latest and greatest in technologies. Um, I think the same would be true when it comes to crop protection and also um, growing the, the biological piece. My bias is on the digital side. I've, in general, found a lot less adoption from a digital perspective. Um, so, you know, when, I, when I'm out in the field and I start asking around, you know, is anybody using FieldView? Is anybody using John Deere Ops Center? Tools like that. It, it's a way lower percentage than I would expect. But that's my bias coming from the States. Right. That was a really great introduction um, and high-level overview. And, you know, you, you have the role of a chief digital officer. So what does a chief digital officer actually do? And what is your mandate? So we could queue up a really bad office space joke here. You know, the, what is it exactly you say you do here? Um, I think there, there are a couple ways that you can frame this and, and let me provide you with both. Um, so the first is probably the obvious. It's peoples and systems. You know, what am I actually responsible for? So in effect, at Lavoro today, we have what I would consider to be three digital products. So we have a grower-facing mobile app, Minha Lavoro. I think you would look at it coming from your background in the States, and you would say, yep, this feels quite familiar to me. We have a farmer-facing e-commerce portal. So if, if you're a producer and you want to buy your inputs online, 
Um, we have a we have a portal for that. That's called Comprolavoro. And then we have a set of tools for our RTVs. Most notably here is Salesforce. And so we're responsible really for the experience around that, and, and as well as those other two products that I mentioned. Um, our team is pretty small. Excluding myself, we have a couple of product managers, designers, analysts. We have an agronomist on the team, which is phenomenal. That was one of those things that I remember back in our days at Climate was always such an amazing thing when we found an agronomist who worked really well with the product team. Lavoro has such a person on the team, and it's really a huge, huge help. The other frame that I think is probably useful in terms of what does a chief digital officer at Lavoro do or what do they bring is really that of the perspective. And, and what's the perspective that the company and, and the executives are looking to me to bring? So I've spent a, a, a good chunk of my career in ag. In general, there's always been a technology side to it. I've also spent some time building more consumer style apps. But you know, all of my career is really, it's, it's largely been around building and scaling digital products and the product teams that build them. So that's a world that I've fully lived in. I'm incredibly comfortable in that world. I struggle with what to call that world. I wouldn't call it digitally transformed. There was nothing that was ever transformed about it, um, but it is digitally native. So maybe a better way to think about the perspective then is less around digital or analog. And it's more about kind of the, the mindset or the operating model that I guess I've come to learn and appreciate with respect to how to build products, especially technology products. And I think that that mindset and that approach, it can be used in non-digital ways as well. There'd be an article, I don't know if, um, if you can link to it later in the show notes. Um, there's a bunch of articles by a, a guy named Marty Kagan from the Silicon Valley product group. I mean, he's written a ton. Um, a handful of the things that he's written in the past year have just really resonated with me in terms of how product teams should work, how technology investments have made. And it was having him write, it was like putting into words all these things that I had been feeling and thinking, um, but hadn't written myself. So super appreciative of, of, of that. He calls it the product operating model. And I think that's what I would probably call the perspective that the chief digital officer at Lavoro is, is looking to bring. Yeah, I think that is fantastic. And I, I think you touched on so many different things in that one answer. You know, you talked about the agronomist. I, I think the people with the tech background, you know, they need to be able to work with folks who have the domain expertise and, and bring that perspective to the table. Your sort of commentary on how it's an operating model and how it's a thought process, I think that is so important. And as a product manager myself, I'm learning a bunch of things through this conversation. So this is really good. You know, maybe let's sort of dig a little bit deeper. You know, you mentioned, you know, three different product lines from a technology standpoint, addressing sort of different needs for different types of customers. And a lot of it is about the customer experience for your uh, your 72,000 farmers or your retail staff. I mean, they're not your customers, but you know they, they are sort of enabling the process. So when you think about it, like how do you want your customers to describe their experience when they're conducting business with Lavoro? Like what, what, what does that user experience look like and what, what do you want them to experience? So internally, the language that we use, we talk a lot about a frictionless experience. Um, a frictionless experience for the producer. We talk a lot about time in the field for our RTVs. And, and those things really go, go hand in hand. 
our producers' lives are are complex enough. Operations are complex. Seasons are complex. Weathers are complex. Right. The last thing you want is for it to be complex to have to do business and purchase inputs with us. And the same is true for our RTVs. So they want to be out with their customers. I, I think, especially what I've seen in Brazil, it's a really competitive market for good agronomic technical sales talent. And so when I look at the experience that we want to deliver as, as a company and, and you know, from a digital perspective, there's a piece which obviously focuses on the end customer, the producer, but there's a huge piece which focuses on our RTVs. And the reason to focus on the RTVs is because they are really that intermediary with the customer, right? Every dollar, every AI that comes from a customer actually flows through an RTV. So make the RTVs lives great, give them the tools that let them do their job really well, and the producer is, is going to benefit. Yeah, so you want to enable the folks who are going to have a direct relationship with your end customer with the right set of tools so that they can do a really good job of making sure your end customer, which is the farmer uh, or a producer, really understands what you bring to the table. Is that a good summary? Yeah, that's a good one. Yeah, I mentioned earlier on that the keyword was, was technical. And so most of our RTVs are going to have a degree in agronomy. They'll have gone through a two to three year training program before they're a quote, fully fledged RTV. They are going to work with, you know, 20 to 40 customers over the course of the season. And, you know, back to that, that breadth of the Lavoro portfolio, they need to know a ton about all these different products and how to use all of that to really help the producer through the season. A point of similarity with the U.S., ag in Brazil is an incredibly relationship focused business. So that RTV farmer relationship is, is absolutely the critical. It's, it's the building block, right? Tell a quick story that was really, really impactful for me. One of my first trips um, when I was working with Lavoro, uh, I got to go out to a town called Sinop. Um, Sinop is way in the west of Brazil. It's in Mato Grosso. At a risk of any sort of rivalry, I would say it's probably the soybean capital of the world. It's it's an amazing thing thing to see, um, but I was out there with um, with one of my colleagues who was acting as a translator um, for me, and we were out there to visit with RTVs and and with some of our producers, and one of the RTVs took us out to visit a producer, Kleber was his was his name, Alexandre was the RTV, and you know we got out to visit the producer. We got out there and I I asked the producer, well you know so what sort of products did you purchase from Lavoro this past year? You know how did it go? What did what did it look like? And the answer was, he didn't actually purchase anything from us in the past year. And I was floored. There, you know, there we were sitting in his office talking to them, and he, was, he hadn't even purchased from us this past year. But it became really obvious really quickly that his relationship with Alexandre was just so critical. And so there was Alexandre, even though Kleba hadn't purchased anything, he was still out there on the operation, helping him, advising him, talking to him. And because of that, when the next season rolls around, will be automatically in the game. And so, so that relationship is so critical between our RTVs and producers. Yeah, I think that's a great example. I, I would love to hear more examples like this and, and stories like this uh, throughout this conversation. And I think this also highlights that, you know, this is a long business. This is not a transactional business. And anything and everything you can do to build that relationship for the long term. And I'm assuming or hoping that, you know, with your role as the digital lead, 
you know, you can bring some of those newer technologies or even existing technologies to help your salespeople strengthen those relationships uh, on an ongoing basis, right? What we're constantly doing is looking at the current set of tools that we have. Um, you know, how do we make those better? How do we make them more effective? And then, of course, we're looking at what else is out there and what, what could we be doing? And all of that starts with really understanding. And this is the crux of product management, right? As, as you and I have, have lived it and experienced it, you know, you're trying to, on one hand, understand what are the needs out there? What are the, what are the things that if you solve them would actually create value? Then you're balancing that or you're, you're weighing that against what you as a company, what do you need? What's going to create value for you? And then lastly, with your technology hat on, it's to say, okay, well, I know this is possible today. This is maybe possible tomorrow. Here's where it's going to be five years from now. Okay, now how do I triangulate the right path through those three things? And that's right. just fun. Yeah, no, I think that's really cool. You mentioned about creating this frictionless experience, which sounds so much similar to Amazon. You know, you, you go and, and buy things online. But one slight difference with Amazon for Lavoro is, you know, retail in this example is very much a capital in intensive uh, business. Obviously, Amazon, you know, invests a lot in CapEx with, you know, warehouses and things like that. And they have an amazing supply chain network. But retail is sort of similar, but you also have, you know, maybe storefronts or, or locations uh, with a lot of the companies that you have acquired. So, you know, you, you mentioned about the importance of the sales staff, uh, the RTVs that you, you talked about. You know, based on past experience, it's always challenging uh, when there's a capital intensive business to get investments for digital initiatives. Uh, how, how do you or how does the leadership think about you know, the resource allocation when it comes to investments in the brick and mortar infrastructure and the training of the staff versus investing in digital? It's a great question. I think this is where, I guess, my, my background and the product thought process and training, I think, is really important. Because it's, in my mind, it's never about, is this a digital or is this an analog thing? Digital happens to be in, the, in my title, but that's not, you know, that's not the lens that I look at the world, right? So I don't think that companies, Lavoro included, should approach everything as if digital is, you know, should be a sort of a default. Yes, we should do this. We should invest there, right? It's a way to describe a set of tools, a set of technologies that you can use to solve problems. And the key thing is to understand and, you know, both at the executive level and, of course, at, at every level below, right, to understand the problems and prioritize the ones that you want to solve and the outcomes that you want. And then it's possible, and this is where my bias would come in, I would say, yeah, you know, a lot of these problems, sure, we can solve them with technology. We can solve them with software. And that's probably a good, good option. But I guess I would caution, you know, immediately jumping to, yes, let's, let's build apps, let's build software, let's build something digital because digital sounds really cool. It's no different than maybe jumping to the opposite solution or, or the opposite end of the spectrum, which would be to say, no, let's just go hire some humans and give them spreadsheets and they can pass spreadsheets and PowerPoint slides around. Yeah, I think that is such a great thought process. Um, as I said, I'm learning a whole bunch from this conversation. You know, given a technology person, you often make the mistake of leading with tech versus leading with solving the problems. And, and I am really enjoying how you're describing, you know, you want to create a frictionless experience. I think that is, doesn't matter what tools you use uh, as long as you're using the right tools for your customers and your sales staff. 
So that is that is really cool. When you think about sort of the ag retail business in Brazil versus, let's say, U.S., what are some of the untapped areas of opportunity for Brazil or even U.S., right? You know, where do you think most friction is happening today and what are some of the next set of challenges that you are thinking about in tackling in, in providing a more frictionless experience to your customers? Sure. So I'm very much still in a learning mode when it comes to to ag retail. I've been in, I guess what you could call sort of ag retail adjacent products and, and companies for a long time. And I remember at Climate when we integrated more with Monsanto and we really honed our go-to-market for FieldView and we came to really rely and, and think about ag retail and Monsanto's channels for distribution. At first, it just was so foreign to me. You know, I, I came from a world of let's build a sign-up form, let's, uh, let's get people to sign up, let's drive them there with digital advertising. And, you know, then every retailer who visited us or who hosted us for a visit, right, you, you learn how critical that absolute path is. So I understand the importance of, of it, but I'm, I'm definitely still learning a lot about it. Untapped areas. I think, on, you know, on the, on the retail, sort of at that intersection of the retailer and the producer, I don't think, and I'd love to be wrong here, and I'd love examples of, of this, but I haven't seen yet any real true sort of sustained higher value input plus services plus products plus digital type offering. And when I say sustained, I mean, you know, not piloted in one season, dropped out the next, um, but really that's, that's, that's been proven that's here to stay. And, and that also requires a fundamentally different business model. You've written a lot about this. That's, I think, a huge untapped area. You know, I said earlier, one of the things that made me so excited about Lavora was the breadth of the, of the input portfolio. I think in order to do something like that, you have to have a broad input portfolio. So that's an untapped area. If there are examples where I'm, where I'm missing them, I would please point them out. I'd love to see them um, and understand them more. Obviously, that would also help us. Yeah, I'm sure we'll hear from some listeners, uh, hopefully, that, hey, this is a good example. So, you know, you mentioned maybe changing gears a little bit here. You know, you mentioned, you know, different business models, uh, potentially, especially you talked about so the whole integration of the entire input portfolio, the digital piece, uh, the service piece. What kind of business model evolution are you seeing in Brazil happening across, you know, the spectrum that you talked about? And if there are any specific stories that you can relate, that would be great. So I think you're seeing experiments happen. And you know, I mean, if I look at ourselves and, and the experiments that, that we're running and looking at, we have a partnership with, with two um, soil testing companies, one, one called Pattern and the other one called Stenon, both of which offer really excellent ways for RTVs and farmers to understand more about what's happening in their soil. And so we're really looking at how do they work? How are they perceived? What do you need to do in order to sell, position, understand the output, the recommendations. But then also, you know, when you couple that and you think about that in the context of inputs and, and input sales, what does that look like? We had a pilot this past season. We're going to be doing a lot more in this coming season. Um, that's obviously a, a key thing for us. And, you know, I think you'll continue to see us look for other new technologies which are out there, which we think that if we bring them to our producers, we can, you know, create a better outcome for everybody. Yeah. No, I think that makes sense. And, you know, based on some of the data that I've looked at, it looks like biological products are 
seeing a lot of interest in Brazil, and and that's a, I'm assuming that's a complicated sale in terms of really understanding the context of the of the producer and their operation. And so, could you speak to that? Like, what what kind of training are you providing to your sales staff? Uh, how does that process look like? And are there sort of different business models that you're looking at when you're looking at some of these higher value and newer, complicated sales processes? So, 100%, it is a more complicated sales process with something like a biological. I mean, we're running our own field trials, so the RTVs are going to end up seeing different sets of field trial data on how do these products perform, you know, in what conditions. This is where the interesting pieces with with pattern and with stenon come in. You know, how do you help a grower better understand actually what's happening in the soil and with their field for which a biological could be a good a good solution. So we're still at re- you know really early days of of tying those things together, but but I certainly think that there's a there's a strong link between those two. You know, early on you talked about your long experience working at you know input companies, tech companies, you know, etc. And, and you know, we work together at the Climate Corp as well. What are some of the lessons that you are bringing from not just Climate Corp, but you know, your past career uh, within ag to this role? And I'm curious to know what are the things that you are taking and what are the things you're saying like, wish we did that, that was a mistake, we should not do it here. <laughs> That's, um, there are a lot of the latter, tons of the latter. Okay. Um, we'll be having these team discussions and, and somebody will have an idea about, about something we should try, something we should build. And you know, I try to always first think about, you know, is there something that's different about the Brazilian situation? that would make my previous experience not valid or not true before I say, well, actually, that's something that, you know what, that's a feature we built. Yeah, it didn't go so well. But, um, you know, I learned a ton from climate. That it was such a, for me, such a formative experience. I think one of the lessons that I learned really early, um, and this is one that I, I really push on with, with the team, you know, the, the digital team, other than the agronomist that I mentioned, by and large, it's people who don't have a ton of experience in the ag space. They have great technical experience, great other experience, but not ag. And so I'm really pushing them to also learn a lot more about ag. And, and you know, that was one of the first, I think one of the first things I learned at Climate from one of the, the best guys um, out in the field that I can possibly think of was the word agriculture, right? It's ag and it's culture. And you have to understand and you have to respect them both. And agriculture has such extreme variety and extreme diversity around the world. Even within the US, it's incredibly diverse even more so in Brazil. And so really trying to understand and appreciate those differences um, and not try to throw a you know cookie cutter solution at everything, super important. Um, the other thing, maybe from a product development, this is maybe more practical and something that hopefully people could actually, actually use. But from a practical product development perspective, I think one of the f- most important things that I learned at Climate and then you know it's, it's impacted me in subsequent places, but it's thinking about the product that you're building really in the context of the ag cycle. So, right, in the U.S., you have one season per year, generally speaking. So, you can't just think about, okay, I'm going to build this thing and I'm going to release it. That's a sure way for it to fall flat. You've actually got to say to yourself, okay, well, when is it that the grower is going to need to use this? Okay, if that's when they need to use it, when do they need to see it? When do they need to be trained on it? When does therefore the retailer who's providing it to them need to see it be trained on it? When does my internal, you know, back, 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 back? And eventually you get to some point, 
I don't know, six months, nine months prior where you actually need this thing to be built and to be ready so that you know it can ultimately be successful some months later. But if you don't think about your product development inside of that framework, you're just going to release stuff at random times and it'll fall flat. And so that was certainly true, um, certainly true in the US with one season per year. You know, I haven't been through a full year yet in, in Brazil, but my hypothesis is that it's going to be even more critical to think about product development with that cycle and framework in mind because if you have multiple seasons, multiple overlapping cycles. So I guess back to your question, thinking about the ag cycle when, and, and layering that on your product development cycle is absolutely critical. Yeah, I think that makes a lot of sense. Um, you know, looking at your past experience, I mean, I sometimes joke that if you've worked for five years in ag, ag tech, you're a newbie in ag and you're an old fart in, in tech, right? And, you know, you also, when I look at your background, you also worked on maybe something which is much more fast-paced, right, with money transfer to Africa. That is a very different experience, but I'm sure there are things that you've learned there that you can bring to the table. And, and the reason I'm asking this question is I oftentimes feel that doesn't matter what industry you work in, whether it's agriculture or drug discovery or retail, I think bringing in outside perspectives is super important because all of us can learn from each other. So I'm curious to know what are some of the learnings from that experience that you're bringing or able to bring to, to this particular role? Sure. So maybe quick context. Um, I took a three-year roughly detour out of ag. I had an opportunity to go work at a company called Sendwave. Sendwave is a international remittance company, so it helps primarily migrants. Um, at the time when I when I joined, it was mostly migrants from Africa to send money from Europe and the U.S. back to countries in East and West Africa. You know, over my time there, we expanded around the world many more corridors, sending I don't know several five-ish billions or so dollars per year. So it was sizable, millions of users, customers type thing. So the sort of thing that you aren't going to see working in an ag context. And that was really exciting to me. And that was the experience that I wanted. You know, ag is great, tons of data, super complex in many ways, but you're never going to have the millions of users. So from a product perspective, it's fun to work on a product like that. Similar to ag, trust is of primary importance. You know, you're asking somebody, you know, they're taking five bucks, 10 bucks, 100 bucks. Um, we tended to focus on the high frequency, low volume style of transaction um, as opposed to, you know, low frequency, thousands of bucks every month sending it back home. But even if it's only a couple bucks, it's still, it's still money that somebody's earned and it's still going to somebody who really needs it. Um, and so making sure that it gets there and, and having, building that trust is really critical. And that's the same when, you know, same trust that's required when you're building a product, which is ultimately going to impact somebody's livelihood for example, a, a producer customer. Remittances is highly regulated, incredibly regulated. It's also incredibly highly competitive. Um, so anytime you're making a product decision, you're having to balance these, you know, what are the 10 other people in the market? What are they thinking? What are they doing? What strategies are they employing? And also you have to think about the regulatory side of it. And I think one of the things that you learn, and, and I think this is this is then helpful coming back in, into the ag context, is that everything is a trade-off. And you just have to always just be open about the trade-off. So, you know, we're doing this and it's, it's great from a user perspective, but it would be bad from a, from a risk perspective. Or this is great from risk, bad for user. How do we find the right balance of those, of those things? You know, that's a conversation that you have with your, with your peers, with your team, 
but just being really explicit about the sorts of trade-offs um, that you're making is really critical. Staying on this theme of you know lessons learned from other places, you know in the U.S. people spend a lot of money and effort in putting up all these different types of maps, you know yield maps, and you know this imagery, that imagery, drone imagery, and the common criticism was like, yes, this looks pretty, but I don't know what to do with it. And this is something that I've thought about quite a bit. And and in the philosophy that you should meet your customer where they are, meet your user where they are. What are some of the things in the Brazilian context when it comes to use of technology, which are one different from the US? And what are some of the lessons that you have taken from the US when you think about Brazil, how people communicate, for example, you know, are they used to logging into a website? Basic things like that, but which can have a huge impact on user experience and how their relationship builds with you as a company and uh, how much business they do with you, right? So one of the things um, I, I get teased about this all the time now is that I, I've become a WhatsApp addict. Oh, you're not one so far? <laughs> well, no, I, I never was one in the past. Um, you know, we don't use it as a communication platform all that much here in in the states. Um, I think if you you know if you have friends and family abroad, you probably use it more. And that was how I you know I had one friend in Australia, and that was how I communicated with them. But it's everywhere in Brazil, and everything happens over WhatsApp. Um, it's amazing. You know, this the whole economy of the country is practically running over over Meta. So one of the things that we think about a lot in terms of product development and and user experience is not how do we get somebody to download, you know, I don't want to build another app that somebody has to download and has to learn how to log in and all of that. We're experimenting a ton with WhatsApp and really, you know, you use the phrase meeting your customer where they are. That's where our customers, that's where our TVs are. So we're experimenting a ton with that as a, as a channel, as a platform for how to deliver the sorts of things which previously you probably would have built a, you know, iOS Android app for. Yeah. I guess I'm an immigrant as well, so I'm a heavy WhatsApp user. Uh, that's what I use all day long to stay in touch with my family and, and things like that. And a lot of times, product managers, they measure the success of their product based on like, oh, time in the app or you know, a number of logins, et cetera. Like, how are you setting the incentives for your team? And I'm getting very tactical here and balancing meeting where your customer is and using an existing infrastructure for something like WhatsApp, which is already there, people are used to it, versus worrying about, oh, they're getting off of a digital experience. I love the question. And again, it goes back to the not putting digital ahead just for the simple sake of, of digital. So when I think about our apps and when I think about our, our e-commerce website, right, we are tracking all of those usage metrics, all those product metrics, monthly actives, time spent, all the usual stuff. But what really at the end of the day matters is that that app, that that website, that the WhatsApp experiment, whatever it is that's actually driving some sort of value, some sort of outcome. And so we're always trying to tie what we're building back to what the thing actually that matters for the company is. So for example, if you think about some of the digital work, you could think about the number of leads that you've generated that have been sent to a store that have been acted on by an RTV, which have been resulted in sales. But the point at the end of the day is the lead is the customer, not a bunch of monthly active users in an app. Yeah, I think that's great. I mean, I, I think this is also another lesson that focus on what are the true metrics which drive your business 
and the customer experience versus looking at some vanity metrics of you know time in app or or you know number of logins. And again, not for tech for tech's sake, but I, I'm noticing a lot of companies out there almost have like a form of about AI and you know some of these new tools like ChatGPT. How are you thinking about these newer technologies? And are you feeling the pressure from certain folks like, hey, we need to do use ChatGPT or we need to use you know whatever the latest uh, shiny object is? Yeah. So, I mean, back to when we talked about WhatsApp, I absolutely, part of what I love about the about WhatsApp as a platform and a, a way of delivering a user experience is the fact that it's chat-based. And that would be a very nice way of hooking in some sort of LLM type capability. Assuming that you have an LLM that's actually meeting the use case that's really important to you and to, and to your business. Um, we are doing like everybody, as you mentioned, you know, we're doing our own internal experiments with this, you know, some prototyping, some hacking. That's the fun part. That's, that's the really fun, fun stuff um, of the job. And yeah, there's some pressure, but it's, it's good pressure. Yeah, I think that's another great uh, lesson for me personally and, and everybody who is going to listen to this or is listening to this. Maybe last question, you know, you mentioned things about vertical integration and how you're vertically integrated or are trying to correct me if i'm wrong on that but then you also have platforms like crop care and platforms by nature are sort of horizontal in nature i don't know if it makes sense here or not could you sort of elaborate on how you guys think about vertical integration versus providing things which which is like a brand which goes across multiple products yeah so you know if you go back to kind of the the thesis behind Lavoro. Um, it was really, you know, on one hand, you'd have this this scale of retail locations. And then on the other hand, you would have have vertical integration and being able to provide um, more private label type products. The benefit of that scale is really that you can then invest a lot more into those private products. Those private products tend to be higher margin you tend to understand and know more about them. Those in turn, because you know more about them, because maybe you can place them better, you tend to deliver a better experience, which in turn drives again, that benefit of the scale and the expansion. So, you know, the, the two really go hand in hand. Well, that is going to do it for today's episode. I want to thank Alex Wimbush for being on the show. And I want to thank Rishi Pete for making this episode happen. Uh, I should mention, too, Rishi has launched a website for his consulting company, Metal Dog Labs. So if any of the stuff you're hearing about here today regarding uh, product management or technology or AI in agriculture relates to you or you'd like help kind of navigating these waters, I highly recommend you visit his website, which is metaldoglabs.ai. I'll put a link for that in the show notes as well. Go uh, connect with Rishi and see if he might be able to help you there. Really appreciate it to both of them. Thank you to Swap Maps for being our quarterly presenting sponsor. And last but never least, thank you for your time and your attention. I do not take it lightly. I'll be back next week with another story of ag innovation. Mm-hmm.